Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We are joined today by the architect, David Rockwell, who, among his credits, has designed, he and his firm have designed restaurants, casinos, movie theaters, some very uh, notable restaurants, I might add, including here in New York, Monkey Bar, Nobu, the Grand Central Terminal Dining Concourse at that railroad station, Michael Jordan's, Emeralds in New Orleans, Miami, Atlanta, uh, Nobu also in uh, Dallas, Las Vegas. Also on the profile for your architectural firm, the Rockwell Group, the Mohegan Sun Casino, several movie theaters, Cirque du Soleil in Orlando, Florida, the Kodak Theater where the Academy Awards are given out, and a bunch of Broadway musicals, set designer for All Shook Up, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Hairspray, for which you received a Tony nomination, and The Rocky Horror Show. Welcome, David. Nice to be here. David, it's a very simple and obvious question to start with. You're an internationally successful architect. How did you break into theater? Well, it, it I think, starts with, as many people in theater start with, a, a a lifelong obsession with live theater. And uh, so my, my path actually took me as a kid. My mom was a dancer in vaudeville. And when we moved to the Jersey Shore from Chicago, she was one of the co-creators of the, the uh, local community theater there, which in my mind rivaled anything Joe Melsiner ever did in New York. It was, uh, you know, I had these wonderful childhood memories of going into these dark spaces and with a group collaborating, creating magic. And uh, I suppose since I came from a family that had a lot of transition, a lot of movement, that instant community was was sort of magical for me. And that love of theater transferred into a love of architecture when we moved to, um, to Mexico. My family moved when I was 11. And I found that my love of theater really became a love of public theater marketplaces, bull rings, um, you know, sort of larger-than-life uh, emotional connections uh, to physical spaces. And then I kept that love of theater up, and it was really I just a matter of time before I started to think seriously about doing theater and um, uh, meet with uh, directors and writers and, and producers and begin the, uh, I, I guess, uh, the experience of talking about how theater and architecture are similar. So it's a, a long answer, but the, the real key was realizing that it was a love for the same thing. It was a love of storytelling, and it was a love of physical places that connect you emotionally. Well, I've read several interviews with you in which you refer to space having a narrative. Right. And what does that mean, and how does that play into the relationship then with doing theater, which has its own narrative? Well, in theater, uh, the the narrative is is quite clear in in insofar as you're illuminating the story. You know, when we when we started working on Hairspray, we were driven with the experience with Jack and Jerry and in uh, our our first incredibly surreal visit to Baltimore with John Waters to tell that story is as compellingly as we can. In architecture, the story is not quite so obvious. And you have to uncover it. And my process for the last 20 years and and, um, the firm's process, it's a vibrant, uh, multidisciplinary group with model makers and set designers and illustrators and 
dogs and musicians. And what we try and do is find, I guess, the DNA of the project. So if you take Nobu, for instance, the original Nobu, which opened about 13 years ago, in that case, the story in the script was Nobu's point of view of food. His taking Japanese food and wanting to present it in a way that was different than any other food. He wanted to illuminate the South American influences, the importance of the raw ingredient. So, you know, you discover the story. But I I feel like storytelling is, in some ways, the most powerful form of communication. And it's a thing at the the real core of uh, space making for us. Well, in the case of a Broadway show, obviously there's a story that's being told in the theater. The audience sits and watches the story. You mentioned hairspray. I don't know if um, Necco wafers are sold all over the country. Certainly here in the Northeast they are. I have my daily Necco uh, ration. Necco wafers are little candies of different colors, pink and pale yellow and pale green and pale tan and whatever. <laughs> right. How do Necco wafers and hairspray relate? I'm told that there's a well, connection. Necco wafers and light bright, I think, those are the two to ask too, right. about. In a deep and obscure way. Um, mm. The way they relate is when we started doing hairspray, I immersed myself, of course, in 1962. Uh, John Waters particularly skewed kind of eccentric version of it. And there were a couple of things that were clear. I remember the first presentation I made to Jack O'Brien and, and Jerry Mitchell. I was so thrilled to be on the project. And I had filled a room solving every moment of the show scenically, more scenery than you could fit in three shows. And so we had every solution worked out. And Jack put his arm around me and said, all right, David, now let's pick the four things that make you fall in love with the heroine the most, that make you fall in love with Tracy the most. And it was, a, it was a great redirection in when you talk about the story, realizing that the story that the scenery is telling is not about calling attention to itself. It's about transitions and taking you from place to place. So as we started to get into it, I realized there were several crucial relationships in the show that could be helped scenically. One of them was when they sing Welcome to the 60s, and uh, it's Edna's first, you know, moment of realization that she can get out and dance, too. And she's seduced by Tracy's vision. We wanted the stage to come alive in a kind of electric way that had the innocence of 1962, but had a love. Of, you know, 1962 was also the TWA building, the kind of love of modernism and uh, new materials. So the, the, uh, the light bright analogy came out of thinking of things that were playful and innocent, but embraced light and technology in, in, a, in a specific way. And uh, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Actually, the five-year-old was born out of town uh, when we were out of town. Lola was born out of town. So we started to play with the, the light bright wall. And then we realized in addition to that, there was the white Baltimore and there was the black Baltimore. And they weren't about to get along until the end of the show. And that was critical to show those two worlds. And Necco wafers are about the whitest candy I can think of. They are, they are you know, powdery white colors and have a kind of uh, softness to them that, that we thought really represented the, the suburbs and the color sensibility of what that would be. Hmm. Interesting. Well, as you talk about reference points, let's, let's take a minute and talk about your first Broadway show, which was the Rocky Horror Show. I was surprised to hear that when you were approached to do the show, you'd never seen it. Well, remember, I spent um, from 11 to 18 in, in Guadalajara. So my um, 
popular culture references were more Contine Floss than than, uh, the Rocky Horror Show. No, I'd never seen it. I rented the movie and came back and said to Chris Ashley, I can't imagine what all the fuss is about. This seems like the smallest, most sort of insignificant thing. I mean, it was fun, but I hadn't seen the audience reaction. And he said, no, the the point of this show is really about self-creation and the ability to create yourself in your own image. And that's how the audience relates to it. And the opportunity for the show was to create an environment that, that surrounded you in that. So, of course, I was hooked with that idea. Well, when you talk about surrounding the environment, that show was done in Circle in the Square, which is a fairly notoriously difficult space to work in, especially for a show that requires a variety of locations. Your work was exceptionally versatile, and you you did, I don't mean to sound pejorative, but you, you put tricks into that place that I'd never seen before. How much of that, in, in, it seems that as a new designer, you didn't have the preconceived notions of what that space could or couldn't be any more than you had a preconceived notion of what the Rocky Horror Show had to or not be. What was I, the approach? Well, I think that there's there's uh, something great creatively about not knowing the answer before you begin. And I'd been a student of theater all my life and was fascinated with the fact that that space had so many limitations. And And I'll tell you, I think some of the best moments in that space were because of the limitations. What, 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 what sort of limitations? Well, for one thing, there's no way to sit in that space and not be aware of the rest of the audience. So if you want to create an environment in which you're having a one-on-one experience only of the playing space and not the audience, you're in trouble. And since this show really called for the audience being involved, we felt like our playing space was the whole audience chamber, and we, we wrapped this... Uh, red velvet that looked like it had bodies behind it. Because the audience is sort of in a, in a U-shape. It's a U-shape, right. Yeah. So 270 degrees or something like mm-hmm. that. Right. There's almost no, there is no fly space to speak of. But what we realized is because the floor was so steeply raked, there was a lot of floor. Mm-hmm. So we said, let's use that floor to, uh, to bring the audience into the experience. And then let's start with, is enclosed, think about the relationship of architecture and theater, Starting with something that is enclosed, let's take the entrance to Radio City Music Hall. When you walk in that vestibule, the ceiling is lower. Then when you pop up into that big space and move up the stairs, you can literally feel your posture change because of that spatial manipulation. In in Rocky Horror, we created a very enclosed movie theater uh, that was in some ways a tribute to the B-movie you know, classics. And then the proscenium was supposed to fly away. It couldn't fly away, and it couldn't even track off because there was no space in the wings. So we had to have it crack open, hinge, and track off. And those limitations became really even more thrilling than if we could have just made it appear. The the laboratory, which was a huge challenge in terms of lighting, and it was my first experience at the ongoing collaboration with, uh, you know, required with the director and the lighting designer and the scenic designer to make every moment work, but we had to lower the laboratory from the ceiling, which blocked every possible follow spot position. Had it been in a traditional Broadway house, how might it have differed, do you think? Well, that's an interesting question, because when we first started to talk to to Jordan Roth, the producer, and Chris, he actually gave Chris and I some options over what theaters it could be in, and we looked at a more traditional theater, and we, we had 
a solution worked out that um, it would have been a different show. But I felt it was critical to have a major, major transition when you go from love of B-movies into uh, Frankenfutter's Castle. So when you began that, what was... What was the learning curve for you? Were there things that you had to discover about working in a theater space, or or does it go all the way back to working with your mom and these community theater shows? Obviously, well, you had greater resources, but but it, it's a bit of a different language, certainly than than architecture itself. Well, it's a very different medium. In in um, one of the things I was absolutely amazed by is the level of um, support in the theater, the level of craftsmanship by the people making things. The, uh, the the total teamwork that happens in theater is something that I've actually started to use more in architecture. We're doing JetBlue's new terminal, and we brought in Jerry Mitchell as a choreographer to consult with us and the client about movement because so much of what happens in the terminal is you know 20 million people trying to get in and out through the same same portal, and it turned out to be a really interesting collaboration. In theater, the um, there were a few shocks with Rocky Horror. The biggest shock was no one told me that the first preview happens when half the scenery isn't in, or in this case, the whole end of the show. And that was, you know, a very... That was planned, or that's simply what happened? <laughs> well, I, I think in general, first previews are that. They're, you know, they're sort of a work in progress. And uh, I, I was not prepared for the fact... <laughs> <laughs> that there were whole pieces that weren't going to be in, and that it's an iterative process that you discover in, in uh, out of town in Seattle for Hairspray and in um, very much so in San Diego for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. We didn't know exactly physically what the end of the show was going to need until we saw the show play through. And uh, in both cases, Jack O'Brien was um, – very clear about the fact that the audience in some ways will, you know, that you needed to stay flexible as a designer and look at the show as a series of modules that could come in and come out. And the show changed quite a deal. And that that level of trusting the team was something that is not directly translatable from architecture, but I think it's it's something more and more. There's a younger generation of architects that's working. You work on projects all around the world and you come together and work as a team. And I think in theater... It's particularly inspirational. Well, was it the case that the shows were still evolving, that scenes were being written or rewritten out of town or even in previews, that the scenery wasn't in or was it because it was well, just delayed? Well, in the case of uh, Rocky Horror, it uh-huh. was delayed because uh-huh. uh, it wasn't out of town. It was, but, you know, and, and we were also, um, if you remember Rocky Horror, the whole stage had a two center pivots that flipped and disappeared into the floor. It was stunning when it happened. And Nobody had ever seen that in Circle in the Square. So getting that tack just in terms of amount of time you have to work on it. So it was a timing issue. In in Hairspray, we, we, we had the light bright wall designed and we had a series of towers. And the towers appear at the very end for the finale and they also appear in a number called Without Love. And they are in some ways the fire escape of the show. They're where the chorus can hang out. And what we discovered in, in um, Seattle is we needed that to go away. So we needed the light bright wall to fly out. And it changed by staying flexible about exactly what the end was. You save some of your resources to reinforce those moments that really need reinforcement physically. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is it's such a huge financial commitment 
you know, you, how do you stay flexible enough to tell the story in, in, in ways that support what you learn, what you find out? We talk about, uh, about money, about financial commitment. Are you assigned a budget and then do you have to adhere to that? And how creative are you able to be within that, that budget? Oh, and I, you know, there's always budgets, and it sure. seems to me there's never enough money and there's never enough time. That, by the way, applies to architecture and theater. That's, I think it's true in, in many cases outside of theater as well. It's true. In, in theater, uh, you have a certain amount of money, and you have a certain amount of money you can spend physically and weekly. You know, how, how complicated the show is affects what the weekly cost is and um, what every director works differently. Uh, and every director has a sort of different point of view on that. What we like to do is start out by trying to come up with a world physically that does more than one thing. I mean, it's not really about the fixed scenery, but it's about the way things move and change and the way the audience uh, is is introduced to new characters. And we did find there are certain there are three or four or five things from architecture that directly relate to theater. One of them is sense of entrance. Right when a new character comes into the show, one is sense of transition, how it feels to move through a building, or what it feels like to have uh, the the physical environment in the show shift and move. So we'll try and figure out what are the main pieces of the scenery, what are the main systems, how do things move, how do things behave, and then um, what you try to do is f- figure out those major moments and spread the money out so that you're not using all of your resources. In Hairspray, for instance, if we had gotten so concerned about the budget and look at the Lightbright wall as a single unit, we might have convinced ourselves that that was too expensive. Mm-hmm. What we did is we found available technology. Those, L, those are LED lights, uh, and there's three-color LED lights. There's uh, uh, 700 pieces, which are essentially vacuum-form pieces on the back wall with LED in them, and by not eliminating that because of budget, we found available technology and pushed that one piece, and it became really the pulse of the show, the energy of the well, show. The, the, the uh, light bright wall that you talk about is that, that huge wall of colored lights that's upstage behind the performance. It's used several times. Was that the most expensive uh, scenic element in the show? By a long shot. And it, it really kind of makes the whole, the whole mood of it, so it was worth keeping in. Yeah, and it really is the fourth wall. Yeah, and when you talked about a moment ago about the the weekly cost, what sort of costs are they? Stage hands, that sort of thing, or stage hand, winch rentals, you know, all of the all of the physical stuff that goes into to. So if you can make a show, you know, everyone wants to create a show like Chicago, mm-hmm. where you're bringing chairs on and off. There's not a lot of physical movement. It's a it's a small physical thing. So the more you can do that, the 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 less you're burdening the show. But at the same time. One of the the most amazing things, I think, in theater is tech director, stage manager, all the people who support you have 10 or 15 ways to work with you to solve each problem. So if you try and solve all the logistical budget problems at the same time that you're solving the creative problems, you end up with sort of a compromise that that doesn't really do any of those. As we're talking uh, about Rocky Horror and about uh, Hairspray, we're, we're you, you already spoken of reference points of having gone to see the original movie. Um, certainly with Scoundrels, you had an original movie as well. In fact, two movies to look, perhaps to go and look at. What was your process with either All Shook Up or Omnium Gatherum, which did not have 
as specific. Certainly, the Elvis movies may have may have influenced All Shook Up. But what what were the approaches there? Well, Omnium Gatherum was a uh, was particularly interesting to me because of um, its relationship, its subject matter, and its relationship to 9-11. And we should say that this was an off-Broadway play in a much smaller space, and it was indeed a play, not a musical. Right. It was in uh, the variety, and it was a dinner party um, that took place in some non-specific location that had hellish overtones. And I thought it was an amazing piece of writing, and I also thought that um, I I had been very uh, affected, as were, was everyone in New York, by 9-11. And um, we, I was part of a group that set up a foundation that uh, built and paid for the viewing platform and created a kind of action group downtown to help. And when I read the play, my first reaction was it was just totally shocking that anyone would write this play. And I felt it was an important message to get out there. And I really liked the fact that it was off-Broadway and had lower resources and was a totally different challenge, but seemed to call for a large physical transition at the end of the show. And that was really the conversation with the director was, uh, given the limited resources, how do we create a dinner party? First of all, creating a dinner party where 11 people are facing the audience. Solve that. Uh, and create a kind of electric transition at the end that that had a certain element of surprise. And that was a case where we worked very much in model. And I think by making small models uh, with a director, sitting with a director every week, you can start to find those solutions that that in some ways are nonlinear. You know, so you, you do all the research, you do all the work, you prepare, you read the text, and then you look for those nonlinear leaps that uh, that perhaps are less expected but more thrilling. And then all shook up. Well, the first part of all shook up that got me interested was going to a reading and hearing Stephen Remus's arrangements, which I thought were just stunning. Uh, And the, the thing that attracted me the most and that I found most intriguing was Chris's concept that this was kind of an American fable. And this is, again, Chris Ashley, who you'd worked with on Rocky Horror. Right, who's very interested in design and very involved. And he wanted a, 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 the first act to take place in and around this kind of mythic town that starts out as a dreary little place. And then Chad, our hero, comes to town. And the town is electrified with a kind of Elvis swagger and sexiness that allowed the buildings to have a kind of swagger to them as well. And I was intrigued by creating a series of buildings made out of objects you would find from the town. Hubcaps, license plates, uh, shoeboxes, looking at it as a kind of almost red grooms meets Maxfield Parish assemblage of, of pieces that would move around. And then the second act had a more, the, the whole piece relates in some ways to Shakespeare, as you know, uh, and, and Chris's notion was to, to take this sort of Shakespearean... Um, Twelfth Night kind of idea and, and move it through the piece. Uh, and in the second act, we're in one unit set, but the unit set moves and transitions, and you explore this magical uh, amusement park. And having lived near uh, Asbury Park as a young kid. For, for those who haven't seen the show, and it won't because it's already closed, uh, the first act was the little town. The second act was basically the amusement park late at night, like a deserted amusement park. Right. Well, you mentioned earlier that 
theater can often be about entrances, and in All Shook Up, I think you created one of the great entrances for a character, certainly in recent memory, which was Chad appearing on his motorcycle over the rolling hills. Well, Yet it seemed in some ways simple, and in some ways, how did you come up with it? Well, Chris was insistent that the uh, that the entrance didn't want to go like from you know stage left to stage right. That it didn't want to be, which would have been the easiest way to do the motorcycle entrance. And I had been thinking about uh, the kind of American specific American quality of this, and thinking about uh, flip books and animation and the idea of stop action photography. And as we started to think about this, we uh, we were originally going to do projection and high tech. But I wanted – I think one of the thrills in theater is the fact that it's real change happening physically in front of you. I remember the first show I ever saw on Broadway was Fiddler on the Roof when I was uh, 10, standing room only at the St. James, which is where Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is now. And it was just – is that the right theater? It is. No, a, actually, you're at the Imperial. Imperial, which is uh, where producers, Fiddler, the yeah. producers is at the but St. James. But Fiddler was at the Imperial as well. Okay. Uh, and the thrill of that house turning on the turntable was just unbelievable. Very simple, but very powerful and unlike anything I'd seen before. So when he made his entrance on the motorcycle, we looked at it as a kind of three-dimensional living flip book. And in order to demonstrate this to Chris, we made a, a thing that was like a very elaborate toaster that had three or four ground rows that could lift and raise and track left and right with the motorcycle in the center, uh, and he would kind of veer left and right. And then we augmented that with the sense of one of the things I felt about the show was it took place in the wide, wide open Midwest, endless horizon. So telephone poles with that receded in perspective to emphasize that movement became a way to simulate movement while he was just standing still. And for the listeners who have not seen the show, the way the entrance worked is the character, Chad, appears upstage center, and it's as though in the audience we're looking on a long, long country road, and he is riding toward us on this motorcycle and gets closer and closer with these different elements going up and down. gives you the feeling of rolling hills. After the second day of tech in Chicago, when I wouldn't say he rolled over the hills, he sort of (laughs) bumbled over a bump in the road and... (laughs) We thought, well, maybe this was a mistake because it was hours and hours of, uh, I think it's 80 80 cues in that one entrance. To make those hills go up and down. Right. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, what was the the thought process behind those sets? Well, uh, we we listened to all of the music with Jack and Jerry, and the, the overture felt like the establishing piece, particularly its combination of melodic and sneaky. Mm-hmm. There was the you know there were two main characters. Was there was a, a very crude guy and and Lawrence who was very elegant. Mm-hmm. In the physical place is in some ways a combination of the two of them. It's a, a kind of a minimal blue box with a horizon at about seven feet that recedes, and within that <clears throat> sort of elegant blue box, <clears throat> all of the sets are encrusted with hundreds of thousands of crystals and jewels that kind of represent the the ostentatious, cruder aspect of his partner. Uh, and by setting it on two turntables, one inside the other, we, um, in some ways, it felt like the story wanted to be told in this constantly evolving way. Um, think of it as a roulette wheel inside of a roulette wheel that would constantly spin and move 
uh, and elegantly take you from one location to another. Were those turntables already in the theater, or did they have to be built? No, they had to be built. At some expense, I would imagine. <laughs> they also had to be built for rehearsal. The uh-huh. only way to, to rehearse that was to build the two turntables, and we're now in the process of figuring out the tour, <laughs> which will have a simpler version of the two turntables. Before we, we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, there are some shows you've been interested in designing. I once visited your studio and saw your model for what Susicle might have been. I don't want to ask how come you didn't end up doing those shows, but what that. is the process by which you either pitch a director on a show or at that point, because Susicle was about the same time that you were you ended up doing Rocky Horror, how do you even convince somebody that you're the guy to do their show? Well, the six or seven years ago, um, I was at the theater. I was with a, a friend of mine, Jules Fisher, the Broadway lighting designer, and we had left, and I was sketching after the show, and I was sketching different solutions, and he said, you know, why don't you design for the theater? And I said, well, you know, I would love to, um, but I, I need to sort of get in that conversation. And I literally, for two or three years every week or every two weeks would meet with a director and talk to them and start to understand the common language. Uh, with with Frank Galati doing Susical, I met him, and he was just in the process of thinking about the show. And so for me, it was a, a dream-come-true opportunity to sit with him, sit with Steve and Lynn, listen to the music, and start to uh, develop it. So it was a, it was a mutual... I think there's there's not... There's no talking anyone into anything in theater because it's such a personal death relationship. So you sort of have to fall in love with each other and, and fall in love with the project. And it was – they changed producers and things changed and we didn't do the show. But it became in some ways a really a great experience for me because I got to think through solving the problems and didn't have the ongoing responsibility of actually doing the show and built a, you know, a series of lifelong relationships. And that model became – um, really just a thinking tool for me about different ways to uh, to design in the theater. Your your website for the Rockwell Group lists um, roughly 160 people in your firm, pretty big firm, 200 projects completed, many more to come. How do you find the time to design for the theater? And is this like a labor of love? It's a total labor of love. Uh-huh. And, and, and frankly, I see it as um, it's a, it's... It's such an important part of what I do. In some ways, it goes back to what's most important to me. And I also think that architects would uh, fall in love with the notion of permanence. You know, there's a goal of permanence, and nothing is permanent. And I think theater is not only the thing that's most important to me, but it's a, it's a, it's a great chance to work on something that's about creating memories and not, not permanent physical things. I notice also in your bio the word theater is used repeatedly, not only in the sense of Broadway theater, but restaurant theater, show ex- exhibition space and all that. Right. David Rockwell, founder and CEO of the Rockwell Group and Broadway scenic designer, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.